On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Jennifer Frey about moral psychology. So we cover all sorts of topics like just what is moral psychology? What are the main views on offer? What in the world is neo-Aristotelian ethical naturalism? Are virtues necessary for the attainment of human happiness and flourishing? Is the human person the rule and measure of acting well? What is internalism about the good life? Why should clergy and lay members alike care about moral psychology and much, much more? As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, you can just up Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome everyone to another episode of the London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and we are a podcast that's dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church. But we don't want to just think seriously. We think thinking seriously includes a whole host of virtues, and a couple of those we've singled out and we've tried to create sort of a intellectual culture of sorts of things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. And so what that typically looks like is we just we, we think that being a good thinker means being kind and honest to, to those we disagree with, those we find their arguments strange. We want to give them the benefit of the doubt. We want to give them to actually hear from them and not just assume that we understand what's going on. We assume that if we see something that's a problem, they probably see it too, and they probably have a good reason for it. So we just want to give them the benefit of the doubt and understand what's going on there. But on the flip side, we also... I want to be rigorous in our thinking. I'm a Baptist. My co-host Brandon Askew is a Baptist, and we found that a lot of in a lot of our context, thinking just isn't valued for some reason. So we wanted to really pursue that and really cherish that and promote that. Now today, I am really excited to introduce introduce you all to Dr. Jennifer Frey. If you don't know her, you should. She's got all sorts of stuff. So I'm going to tell you on the front end that you go you can go check out her website. Uh, Jennifer Frey, jenniferannfrey.com. She's got a podcast, Sacred of Profane Love. She's got books, all sorts of things. You should check out those things. I'll have them in the show notes so that you can get, just click on it and go there and you don't have to go Google or anything. But you can Google if you want and you'll find her there. She does all sorts of cool things, moral psychology, Thomas Aquinas. I know we've got a bunch of Protestants on our podcast who love Thomas Aquinas right now, so this is going to be great. Uh, So I'm excited to talk about all these things uh, with Dr. Frey. Now, before we begin, Dr. Frey, give me a little bit of background. Who are you, where you're at, um, and what made you interested in devoting all sorts of years of your life to thinking about moral psychology, to thinking about Thomas Aquinas, sin, virtue, you know, transcendence, all those sort of things. Yes. Well, uh, first of all, thanks for having me. I'm delighted to be podcasting and and not be the host for once. Um, who am I? Well, I, I'm not a Baptist, <laughs> so I'm a Roman Catholic, although I wasn't raised Roman Catholic. I am, a, you know, a, a crazy, zealous convert. Um, I uh, I wasn't raised Christian at all. I was um, what demographers call uh, non-religiously affiliated or just nuns, N-O-N-E-S. And um, yeah, so I was raised in a pretty secular household, although I was surrounded by Protestants. I, I grew up in a very evangelical, I grew up outside of um, Cincinnati, Ohio, so uh, lots of evangelical Protestantism. And anyway, um, I went to college and just really got into philosophy and took a class in medieval philosophy. And, you know, you take a class in medieval philosophy, you might, might become a papist. 
<laughs> and I did. No, I mean, but to be clear, like my professor was an atheist, so it wasn't, you know, it wasn't indoctrinization yeah. or something. But um, I just kind of fell in love with two thinkers in particular, St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas. And um, yeah, that just started me down a path that I still find myself on. And um, I liked them because, well, I especially liked Aquinas. I mean, let's let's get real. Yeah. <laughs> and and what uh, really drew me to the thought of Thomas Aquinas is just that here you had a picture of the human person that was integrated, right? So, you know, you you study philosophy and it's just a bunch of dichotomies, right? between subject and object, between nature and reason, between freedom and determinism, just, just like everything is this either or. Um, and in St. Thomas, it's not, not an either or. I mean, like it's, it's this beautiful, harmonious, integrated, hylomorphic account uh, in which reason is a part of nature. And, um, and I just was like, well, this is clearly an improvement. Um, I wasn't sure about, you know, the, the Christianity part, part of it in the beginning. Um, I was very attracted to the natural law, you know, the, the entire basis for thinking about morality. I mean, that was kind of, to be honest, that was my way into this stuff. I was worried about morality and freedom and whether anything really mattered, you know, in the end. Yeah. And if it did matter, why did it matter? These were not questions that I had answered answers to, and it really bothered me because I felt like, well, yeah, that seems important, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, like, what is it? You know, for example, if I <clears throat> if I if I murder someone, yeah, you know, I'm likely to feel guilty about it. Uh, but why? And you you can really press this question. You know, you can formulate this question in such a way where it looks like really there are no consequences, right? You can formulate it in such a way that it just looks like possibly it doesn't matter. But I was firmly convinced that it did matter, <clears throat> that something really essential about me as a human person would be at stake if I murdered someone, but I couldn't tell you why. <laughs> yeah. And again, that really bothered me. And then a lot of the accounts of why that I was reading in my philosophy classes um, seemed either wrong or just not thoroughly convincing. And anyway, um, Thomas Aquinas, I thought, gave a very good explanation of this. Yeah. Um, and anyway, it just started me down this intellectual path. And eventually I became a Roman Catholic and I was baptized just before I was 20. Yeah. So how in the world did you get into philosophy to begin with? Was it just the one philosophy course or something? Or yeah. you had these deep questions and that was the only place that was willing to ask them? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think like, you know, I was a philosopher, but I didn't know it, right? Because I grew up in an environment in which there were obviously no philosophers. Like, you know, I mean, I thought all philosophers were dead. I didn't realize it was a thing that was like still going on. It's sort of sad, you know, um, because it was still a thing going on, but I had no, I had no access to it. And um, I had no idea that it was an academic discipline of study, uh, that it could be like a, a life. Um, 
So I, yeah, I ended up taking a philosophy class because I think it fulfilled some distribution. It was by accident, you know? And um, anyway, I loved it. My professor was just unbelievably amazing. And my professor was a religious Jew, like a, like a devout Orthodox religious Jew. And so he um, kept kosher and all of that. And um, that was very difficult for me because he was also the smartest person I'd ever met in my entire life. And I was like, wait, but I thought religious people were dumb. <laughs> and, so, and so I was like, this is very confusing. And and I remember like asking him like, oh, you know, the Judaism, that's just like a cultural ethnic thing, right? And he was like, um, I believe in God. <laughs> and I was like, what? That's so weird. Um, so it was the, it was the first time that I'd ever met someone who was equal parts intellectually serious and religiously serious. I just didn't think, I just thought you had like a fork in the road there. And so that, you know, that's a huge part of like when I began to question a lot of my assumptions, but I think philosophy in general led me to question a lot of the things that I had just assumed uh, but without recognizing that they were assumptions, just kind of taken for granted as obviously true or whatever. But once you press on it even minimally, you're like, yeah, I have no idea why, like, why I believe most of the things. Like my beliefs aren't really mine because I can't explain them even to myself, let alone someone else. So, yeah, I think I just I just loved philosophy. I still love philosophy. It's uh, I don't want to be doing anything else. Um, and yeah, I mean, I wouldn't, you know, I mean, St. Thomas is a theologian. I don't want to give the false impression that he's a philosopher, but he was a scholastic theologian. So yeah. you can't understand any, like almost anything he's saying, unless you understand the philosophy that is the, that is the, the kind of substratum of, of his theology. So, yeah. Okay. Um, well, you, you just gave a plug for everything we want to do with the podcast, so we, oh, we great. might as well yeah. just Good end job. But <laughs> uh, So you, you do a lot of work in moral psychology, and we have a lot of listeners who are either A, students, um, mm -hmm. a, a lot of them theology students, or they're pastors or clergy of, of some sort, and oftentimes they come here to listen to these to to get further education and sort of things. And they might, a lot of their seminary educations didn't include robust ethical, moral sort of frameworks. Uh -huh. So maybe just give me a, lay, a little bit of lay of the land as far as moral psychology and what the main views are on it. Um, they might, some of them might have just a very rudimentary understanding of like, oh, I've heard the term utilitarianism and, you know, I can use it in a meme. But um, mm -hmm. beyond that, like, give me a little bit of meat on the bones for, for the different views that are out there. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure that I would call utilitarianism a moral psychology, although it, it I, you know, it's a normative ethical theory, but it is based on a very crude and ridiculous moral psychology, right? I mean, that's that's part of the problem. When I think of moral psychology, I am so old-fashioned that I'm tempted to say it's like sukeology, <laughs> like we're re like mm. we're really talking about the soul in an Aristotelian mm. sense, but we're talking about human capacities, uh, there are different kinds of human capacities or powers. 
um, that <clears throat> kind of define the sort of experiences that we have as human persons. And what I find, and, and so I should also say that someone who has been so influential for me, um, besides Aristotle and Aquinas and Augustine, I don't, you know, I, I do love Augustine, um, is, is a, a 20th century philosopher named Elizabeth Anscombe. And she wrote a paper in 1958 called Modern Moral Philosophy, in which, um, it's a brilliant paper, in my opinion. It's a paper that has, by and large, been completely misunderstood. So uh, I think I think somehow people have like drawn the, the wrong lessons from it. <laughs> but one of the things that she says in the paper is that we should stop doing moral philosophy uh, because we don't have an adequate, she calls it philosophy of psychology. Um, and I think, you know, philosophy of psychology, um, was maybe not the best term to use. I think, you know, that has to be understood in the Wittgensteinian sense, but so I would use philosophy of psychology. I, I mean, frankly, just to be clear, most of what is produced today under the heading philosophy of psychology, uh, is not what I'm talking about. That's why I said I'm, I'm tempted to call it psychology, um, because, Philosophy of psychology just looks at this from a kind of empirical perspective. And while I think an empirical perspective can be valuable, it's only insofar as you have the right theory of what you're looking at empirically. Um, so moral psychology would be more like a theory of those capacities of the soul and not just mind, right? Because we're also talking about, I mean, yes, we're talking about judging and thinking and practical reasoning and intuition and willing and choosing and wishing and intending and all of these things. But we're also talking about the passions, right? The emotions. Uh, we're talking about the ways that we, and I would say we're even talking about how we see the world, right? And and this is really uh, the kind of Murdochian influence. So I, I, someone who is also very concerned with questions of moral psychology and I think was rather brilliant was a philosopher named Iris Murdoch who, um, you know, is goes to Oxford around the same time as Elizabeth and Philippa Foote. Uh, they were all friends. Um, but I think has a slightly different perspective on these things. Uh, and I, and I find her perspective very valuable, but one of the things she says, um, one of the themes I would say of, of Murdochian philosophy is this idea that what we can see in people in the world uh, depends on our character, on who we are. And I think that's true. I think that's a view that is also in Aristotle that tends to get downplayed. Um, but yeah, this, this kind of idea of a moral perception as uh, being really essential to thinking about moral psychology and I think it's also in Aquinas. This view is definitely in Aquinas. Um, and then I would also say that, um, you know, philosophers have kind of lost this sense of uh, the fact that there are different kinds of desires, right? Um, that some of our desires are, as it were, essentially rational. Um, but lots of them aren't. 
<laughs> like, and what, so what I've found, you know, is this kind of, um, you, you have this really robust moral psychology and people like Plato and Aristotle and Augustine, and then you read contemporary philosophy and it's all been reduced to like beliefs and desires. And it's like, no, it's enormously more complicated than that. And uh, when we don't pay attention to the enormous complications, we oversimplify the moral life and our moral theories end up being like, quite frankly, both ridiculous and dangerous. So, yeah. (laughs) So I think moral psychology is very important. Uh, It was fundamentally important to the ancient and medievals. And uh, I think we should get back to a more robust way of, of thinking about it, something that's a little bit more real to human life. And that kind of gets me into another thing that I'm really interested in, which is kind of the intersection of literature and philosophy. Um, I think that if philosophers spent more time uh, in, well, frankly, in art generally, but especially literary art, they they might recognize that some of the things they're saying are are just ridiculous. You know, if they had some friends that <laughs> were normal people. <laughs> uh, well, yeah. Um, I mean, um, yeah, well, that's a problem with academics generally. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's a kind of, I mean, so for example, you know, you mentioned utilitarianism, which kind of reduces the moral life to this, to this hedonic calculus and, and also wants to reduce all value to pleasure. And um, there's just, I mean, it's very difficult for me to take that seriously um, because it because it just doesn't fit, you know, what I would just call like the phenomenology of human life. It's sort of like what it's like to be a human person. That's not really what motivates us. Um, and sure, you can come up with some theory according to which it all gets reduced to pleasure. But it's like, wh- why? <laughs> I mean, it's just not convincing. And I think that, um, you know, philosophy does have to, does, does have to convince you on a, on a, on a very deep first personal level. So I I did want to ask you some questions about neo-Aristotelian ethical naturalism. I think that's the title of what an essay or chapter you had. Um, Yeah. I think a lot of our listeners, they hear the word naturalism and they think like atheism. So yeah. walk me through what's going on there. What does that mean? How is that relevant to this moral psychology discussion? Yeah. So naturalism is one of those words uh, like happiness and it's just become totally debased. So, however, I still use it. I still use the word happiness too, but it's like then I have to do all this explaining. Well, I don't mean what you think I mean. Um, and... Yeah, so naturalism, I think typically what it means, even within my own discipline, is reductive naturalism. So at the end of the day, um, all there is is what's going on at a, on a material level, and like the ultimate form of explanation is material, right? Um, and so it tends to go along with this view that the ultimate form of explanation is like whatever empirical science is telling us. I mean, um, you know, empiricism and and naturalism are a, are a kind of natural fit. 
and uh and and you know also goes along with nominalism um when i say naturalist i don't mean any of those things right i mean that we have natures like in the aristotelian sense you know that you and i are beautiful distinct individual people but we share common human nature you're a bearer of human form as am i right and we can talk about that in a serious way and um it's not just like a made up category that's convenient so that we can like distinguish ourselves from rocks and language like it's a real thing uh and um so i have some metaphysical commitments there which I'm happy to defend. But um, yeah, so I mean that we have a common nature and that that common nature is the basis of claims about what is good or bad for us. So, um, you know, the fact that you are a human being both defines you as the kind of thing you are as opposed to any other kind of thing, but it also sets a goal or a measure, right? Um, so I think in some of my work, I call that a constitutive principle. It both defines and measures you. And that's how Aristotelian natures function. And, um, yeah. So when I talk about naturalism, I'm talking about that. Now, neo-Aristotelianism is just referring to the fact that there were a bunch of philosophers suddenly who were willing to uh, put this forward, you know, but of course they're putting it forward in a much different context. And so a lot of the neo-Aristotelians like Geech and Anscombe and Foote are uh, followers of Wittgenstein. So they're not just, you know, uh, they're not arguing for these things in the same way that Aristotle did. Uh, so that's the neo um, not all of them are argue, arguing for it correctly, in my opinion, although I think they're more right than wrong. Um, and actually within neo-Aristotelian naturalism, there are, of course, a variety of views, some of which I think more highly of than others. Um, so just to give you one example of a dispute, we have the so-called first nature naturalists. Uh, which is like Philippa Foote and my advisor, Michael Thompson, and, you know, myself. Um, and then you have so-called second nature naturalism. So this is somebody like John McDowell, for example. The divide is between thinking um, the basis of morality is in first nature, these like robust common nature that I referred to, um, as opposed to thinking, no, it's in second nature, where it's kind of all building and culture, right? Um, so, yeah. Walk me through the second nature because that doesn't make sense to me. I've got Jennifer Hertz's book on like the German Bildung tradition that I have uh -huh. not read. So I, I have no context. I don't know anything. So just explain it to me like I'm five. <laughs> yeah, Bildung is kind of the German word for the Greek paideia. So it's this idea of a deep formation into specific character, right? So the Greeks thought of education as paideia, as character formation, as like sculpting you into an ideal type of Greek, right? Bildung is just kind of the German word for that, you know, moral formation, and um, someone like John McDowell thinks that um, 
Ethics is all second nature. It's all about what we think. So when we talk about naturalism and ethics and when we talk about virtue, we're really talking about second nature. We're talking about practices. So so someone else who fits into this category would be early McIntyre. Now, late McIntyre, I think, is a first nature naturalist. But after virtue, he's just saying, yeah, it's all all social practices, right? And and it just ends there. Um, I think there's an obvious question. Is any given social practice good or bad for human beings? And the measure there has to be outside the social practice itself. Um, so I would be more of a first nature naturalist where I would say, no, there is something real and stable across time and place, uh, that obviously varies across time and place, but there's something real and stable about what it is to be a human person and about what, um, habits or dispositions and even, uh, certain, basic social political arrangements and which are necessary for human flourishing. I think on some extremely general level, we can flesh that out. We can accept there are all kinds of cultural variations of this, but on some level of generality, we're talking about first nature or just nature, right? In an Aristotelian sense. And that that is again, going to be the ultimate measure of, you know, hu- human flourishing or human potentiality that may or may not be actualized in any given circumstance. Um, yeah. So when it comes to, you know, happiness or human flourishing or whatever, um, why would you say that virtues are necessary for the attainment of that? Or would you suggest that there is some nuance there that they're not always necessary for the attainment of it? I would say they're necessary, but not sufficient. And in saying that, I would be following Aristotle. Um, But, I mean, I just don't think that happiness, if it's um, the truly choice-worthy end, I just don't think you can get that for free, (laughs) right? Um, And... And look, I mean, you just have to, and if if we take seriously that happiness isn't just a mental state, but is a way of living and being, um, and, and consists in the possession of real human goods, then I just think that you have to be disposed to think and feel and react and perceive and wish and hope, et cetera, et cetera for in in specific ways so that you can really live and be in a certain way so as to attain actual human goods um and i think it's you know to be honest i think it's easier to see this when you look at vice right you, i mean you can just see the ways in which the various vices which are the opposites of the virtues are are just self-destructive you know i mean they destroy the potential for, for flourishing. Um, and yeah, so, so I just think that you need to become a certain kind of person on a very deep level in order to flourish. And, you know, there's an analogy that you find the ethical naturalists using, and the analogy is to other aspects of, of nature, right? You know, 
you don't just get to be a flourishing oak for free, even though in every acorn there is that potential to be a flourishing oak. It takes a certain environment. It takes certain life activities, right, that have to go on in a certain way. Um, and, you know, we see the, I mean, we see this throughout nature, right? And we can point to natural defect and we can say like, no, it didn't develop a strong root system because of X, Y, and Z, various impediments or whatever. And so it didn't reach its telos, right? And, and we can do the same, well, not the exact same, but analogously, I would say there is a similar structure that we see in human life right? And whether the impediments, the, the impediments are typically some mix of internal and external impediments, right? You might be raised by unvirtuous people. You might live in a society in which, which tells you to constantly seek what is bad. Uh, frankly, I, I think I live in such a society. Um, and so the fact that, you know, you become deformed in various ways, like, isn't surprising. Um, but what's really bad is when you can't even recognize that it's a deformity. You don't even see the extent to which um, it's a distortion or, or a disorder. Um, but, you know, knowing isn't – knowing will never suffice. This is something that I think Plato was simply wrong about, right? Because yeah. uh, I think you can know actually what the right conditions are or you can know what you need to do and still for a variety of reasons be unable to bring yourself to do it. Um, and, and again, so that's why I think we need to pay attention to how complicated human psychology is and the ways in which disordered desires – um, and like prevent us from acting according to what we know or what Aristotle sometimes says from living the truth as opposed to simply knowing the truth, doing the truth. Uh, yeah. So when we think of the moral life in that, in that way, I mean, I, I could totally be wrong here. So you're, you're free to roast me if I am, uh, I'm using the, the terrible dichotomous, uh, relationship between voluntarism, voluntarism and intellectualism. It seems that if if we want to say that we can know the right thing and yet we still don't do it because of disordered loves or whatever, that seems to be leaning more of a voluntarist way. But no, absolutely not. Okay, explain <laughs> no. it to me because I don't no. understand. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Um, so I mean, when when I think of voluntarism, I think of certain debates that were happening. Um, in the period of high scholasticism, right? And um, so, so Saint Thomas Aquinas is someone who, for example, argues that the will is a rational appetite, but it's given its object by the intellect, right? You don't, you don't just desire stuff. You desire what you perceive or know or judge or intuit to be good. Mm -hmm. Um. So that's his picture of the will. Um, and what falls out, I mean, that's his picture of desire generally. So even when we talk about lower desires, so you talk about hunger or sexual desire, you're not just hungry, right? You're hungry for something or you don't, I mean, so he thinks that, you know, you have to come 
into, into cognitive contact with some object of desire. Um, there's a kind of intentionality constraint on desires. Um, so, and this is, this is just coming out of Aristotle. I mean, a slogan would be desire follows cognition and cannot operate independently. Now the voluntarists come along and they say, well, that's not real freedom, right? Freedom is just freedom to choose between opposites. Um, and so it really comes down, I, I guess, to a different understanding of freedom. Um, I don't think just ability to choose between opposites is any meaningful sense of freedom. Um, I think when we talk about freedom, we're talking about freedom to actualize the potential that is in me, given the kind of thing that I am. Um, so, so that's like a big discrepancy. And, and I also think, I mean, not to get too technical, but I think nominalism and voluntarism are, you know, are bedfellows, like, like they, they tend to go together non-accidentally. Um, and now we get into like huge fights about God and God's will and all of which I think are enormously important. Um, but I don't really talk about those cause I'm just, I'm just trying to understand us. I find us complicated enough. Although I certainly think the voluntarist God, um, is not, that's not a vision of God that I find, uh, intellectually or morally appealing. Um, so just to, <laughs> just to state very clearly where I am in that dispute, um, so no, I don't see myself as advocating any kind of voluntarism. Um, I'm, I'm just saying that the sort of Socratic intellectualism that some people read into Plato, of course, you know, like how to read this in Plato, it's like scholars argue about this, but the straightforward reading of Plato, you know, is that virtue is knowledge, right? So the extent to which you lack virtue is the extent to which you lack some kind of knowledge. I don't think that's true. And I, I just don't think that's true. And, um, and Aquinas doesn't think that's true. So Aquinas identifies three sources of sin, three main sources of sin, like general. The first is ignorance, but quite frankly, that's the least interesting source of sin. Like sometimes you just don't know, but then it's a question of, is your ignorance culpable or not? And that's an extremely interesting, complicated question. But then secondly, Thomas says, well, sometimes it's just because you have disordered passions. And his example there is Peter denying Christ. So Peter denies Christ, but it's not because he doesn't know something. <laughs> it's, not, it's not the problem. The problem is he's absolutely terrified that they're going to kill him, right? And as soon as the crowd leaves, as soon as like the mob leaves, he goes outside and weeps. Because, like, he remembers, like, oh, my God, I'm the worst, right? Um, and then finally, and this is most interesting to me because this is heavily involved in Aquinas' account of how, of the fall of Satan, which is a mysterious thing. He says there's malice. And there the problem isn't knowledge and it's not disordered passions. It's in the will. Yeah. So I, I just, and, and when you look at his theory of vice, and his theory of virtue, the problems and the excellences are in what he would call different parts of the soul. 
right? So if you are in temp, if you're unchaste, right? The problem isn't your intellect. <laughs> the problem isn't your will. The problem is in what St. Thomas would call the concupiscible appetite, but we would call, you know, your desires for sexual pleasure. They have not been habituated properly, right? And now this, this lack of proper habituation of that appetite has effects, right? Has effects all throughout the rest of you. But like ultimately, you didn't train yourself properly. And, um, and if we think of fortitude, right? That has to do with the way you experience fear primarily. And again, that's not your intellect. That's not your will. Now, it affects your will because when you experience inordinate fears, you also make bad choices, right? When you experience inordinate fears, it clouds your judgment in a situation. But the actual problem is the way you're experiencing fear. You are unduly afraid of certain things. And so how do we correct that? You have to not be afraid of things that aren't, you know, like if you're terrified at a mouse, right? That's not reasonable. And how you, how you correct that is a different story than knowledge because you can be told, you can be sat down and told, you know, the mice can't really hurt you. And it doesn't do anything to the way you feel the next time you see a mouse. Um, So, yeah. Okay. So that's actually extremely helpful. So I appreciate you for clarifying that for me and walking me through that. So one other thing, you know, I I did want to spend more time on Aquinas. His understanding of being in privation can mm-hmm. you give me a crash course in that? Because I think that's super important. You mean like evil and... as, pri- as a privation? Or... Yeah. 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 I, like, so just the concept of being, concept of private, evil as privation, those sort of things. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so, th- so this comes up for Thomas uh, for the first time in a really serious way. Well, if we're just talking about the Summa Theologiae, um, it comes up for the first time in a serious way when he talks about creation. Right. Um, because he thinks, um, you know, that God created everything, um, which for Thomas just means that he gives it, he gave it existence. Um, creation is not the, the, the beginning for Thomas. Um, but he gave things existence, but in doing so he created things good. Right. So you can't like, you don't want to causally pin evil on God, right? At least not in the sense that it was an object of his will, right? Like he chose to, you know, he he chose for there to be evil or something. Nevertheless, evil exists. However, Aquinas takes from St. Augustine this idea that evil is not, it's not its own reality, right? Which doesn't, which isn't the same as saying that it doesn't exist. So for, I'll just give you an example because it's easier to explain that way. I mean, suppose that tomorrow, um, you lose your arm in some accident, right? And the next time I see you, I'm like, oh my gosh, where's your arm? You know? And you're like, oh, it was machine accident or car wreck or something. And I'll say, oh, I'm so sorry. That's so horrible. 
right? Um, so I'm recognizing that your your loss or your injury is bad, and that's true. Like it's bad to lose an arm um, or to be born without an arm. Um, and what I'm recognizing is that it belongs to you to have an arm, right? You're the kind of thing that has two arms um, and you don't have one anymore. And now there's a lot of things that either you can't do or, or just way more difficult for you now, unless you get an artificial arm or something. Um, so Thomas explains that by saying, well, evil is a, a lack, right? Of something that uh, it belongs to something to possess. So he says evil only exists in good, right? So he means that if I'm going to say that something is bad, I have to recognize that I first have to know that it's good for you, right? To have this thing you don't have. Um, and that something is missing in your being, right? Um, so nevertheless, you really are in this condition where you lack an arm, right? And that's bad. So that's kind of the, you know, and, and it comes up for Augustine because, you know, he's he's dealing with the Manichaeans um, and this same deal, you know, St. Thomas is dealing with the Cathars. Um, it's the same heresy, just repackaged. Um, but but the main heresy is this idea that evil is its own its own reality that's opposed to the good. And metaphysically for Thomas, that's just an error. That's a mistake. Mm. Uh, and you and you find basically the same view in Aristotle. There's nothing essentially Christian about this belief, um, although Christians, given various dogmatic commitments, including the commitment to creation that Aristotle does not have, um, have even more reason, I think, to to adopt this this position. But I mean, just epistemically and ontologically, I think it makes sense. Okay. You know, one thing I've noticed, at least among Protestants anyway, they be, they become somewhat interested in Thomas. And some people seem to, they get to him and they almost just assume for whatever reason, like his intellectualism has problems with all sorts of challenging cases like disabilities and different things. Um, for whatever reason, they think rationality is sort of king. Why? Why is is there? Do you know if there's a reason that people would come with that characterization? I don't know. Do you do you encounter that a lot with students that you're teaching that they have um, a rudimentary understanding? Yeah, I mean, I think that this. Well, so I think there are a couple of different things maybe that you're hinting at. Um, first of all, I just want to say I think it's great that Protestants are into Aquinas. This has been like one of the most beautiful surprises of my life. Uh, it was not the case when I was <laughs> first studying <laughs> St. Thomas. So this has been like a real change. Um, but um, I, I would just say that this charge of uh, intellectualism or something. It's a charge that people also make against Aristotle. Um, I, 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 I understand why people have this worry. And I, and I think it comes from a reasonable concern for people who, for a variety of reasons, their intellectual capacities, um, you know, are either not working at all or just severely impaired. 
And they want to say, well, surely we don't want to denigrate their lives. And that's true. We absolutely do not want to denigrate their lives. Um, However, the last time I checked, it's not followers of St. Thomas who are denigrating their lives. So it's, Mm -hmm. you know, the, the Catholic Church has always been incredibly clear about the value of all human life. And if we read Thomas carefully, he does as well. So Thomas has a question in the Summa on whether the human being is made in the image of God, right? Mm -hmm. And the answer is yes. And the answer is yes, it's because of our spiritual, it's because of the capacities that in some sense are like God, namely intellect and will. Thomas understands these as spiritual capacities, and he understands them as spiritual capacities in multiple senses, one being that they're immaterial, they don't rely on an organ, so there's no organ in your body that is the organ of the will, um, for instance. Um, But he also thinks that they Mm -hmm. subsist, their activity subsists after death, um, and some other things, but he, so he has a reason for picking those faculties in particular, but Thomas recognizes that there is a difference between what Aristotle would call, you know, um, first actuality and second actuality. So like you can just be a bearer of human form and that means that you have you know, these rational capacities, but you might not ever be able to exercise them for some reason, right? And it may be because there's some physical defect, right, that we can point to um, that prevents this from being fully actualized um, or even like partly actualized, but you're still a bearer of human form. And to that extent, yes, you are made in the image and likeness of God. Um, and that has, uh, it's, it's hard to downplay the significance of that theologically, but one significant, but, but one, but the most important thing to say is that you can still participate in the beatific vision. And that's what really matters because that of course is your ultimate end. Your ultimate end is to have that vision of God in his essence. And no matter how cognitively damaged you are in this life, you still have that. Um, and, and so it is still necessary for you to participate in the sacramental life of the church. Now, Obviously, Catholics and Baptists are going to disagree about the sacraments and what, you know, but that's fine. We don't need to get into that um, because I think this basic point about being made in the image and likeness of God still is what fundamentally matters, that we were created in the image of God. And that's, I mean, in a way, that's the whole thing. Yeah. So that's awesome. Um, I do want to, before we close... We've got, like I mentioned, we've got a lot of clergy, a lot of lay members, too, that are just really interested theologically, philosophically. Um, What resources would you say are the most important that a pastor or a graduate student should be reading about moral psychology, whether that's related to Thomas or somebody else? Um, what, What are those key resources they should be paying attention to? 
Oh, well, um, yeah, that's a tricky question. Um, so obviously I think you should be reading St. Thomas, but in my experience, um, it would be better if you were reading St. Thomas, like with, um, with help (laughs) rather than without help, because like, let's just be honest, he's hard. Um, one book that I think is amazing is by a Swiss Dominican theologian named Service Pinkers, P-I-N-C-K-A-E-R-S, called The Sources of Christian Ethics. And kind of like, uh, it's just a beautiful encapsu- encapsulation of um, Thomas's moral theology. Um, and it's a cheap paperback. It's, it's, it's long. I'm, I'm, you know, it's long, but I think it's definitely worth it. Uh, I really highly recommend the Aquinas 101 series. It's absolutely fantastic. It's completely free. You can just watch these short videos. It's so illuminating. Um, you know, like my mom watches them. She's not Catholic. <laughs> she started. <laughs> she started watching Aquinas 101 because she's like, I never know what you're talking about. Um, so. so. So, um, you know, she's Thomas curious because of me. Um, I, I mean, those, those two are great. And, and I think, you know, just start with the pinkers and, and see where, where it hits you. Um, that was a book, that was a book that fundamentally like changed my life. I read it when I was like 19 and there's just no going back from it. I'm going to have to also quote you on Thomas curious from now on. Yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty good. <laughs> just, I'm Thomas uh, Curious. <laughs> so last other thing, what's maybe the favorite paper or, or book or whatever that you've written personally? What was it that you just enjoyed the most that you would say, go read this one because this one's my favorite? Oh, goodness. Oh, Lord. Um, I don't know. Read Pink Airs. Don't read me. <laughs> <laughs> How's that? <laughs> All right. I'll take it. Fair enough. <laughs> Just read, read the greats, read the greats, not me. And you're at University of South Carolina. Are, if people want to study, do PhD work, are you accepting students or no? Yes, I'm absolutely accepting students. Uh, I'm, I'm also like just now putting together a brochure for our PhD program. But if anyone's interested in studying philosophy at the University of South Carolina, uh, please get in touch with me. I'd be happy to talk to you about our program. Uh, my husband is the director of graduate studies. So yeah, just get in touch. Cool. Awesome. Well, thanks for doing this for us. This was a lot of fun. Uh, again, I will link to all the other stuff, her website, the podcast, all that kind of stuff. You should check it out and enjoy it and benefit from it as well as I'll link to Aquinas 101 and the other stuff. So thanks Fantastic. for everybody for tuning in to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.